0: Well, thank you, Josh. Uh, you kind of preached my sermon in the, uh, in the prayer, but hey, you know what? Repetition is good for learning, right? So we'll just hear it again. Lanny's the one who, t- whose repetition is the key to learning. He tells me that over and over. Well, um, this morning, we're going to talk about promises. We're going to talk about promise-keeping and I just before we get started, want to kind of give a little bit of a review today as we are kind of moving towards the end of, of chapter three in Galatians. And so we're we've been studying through this book and here we are, Galatians three, fifteen through eighteen. I'm I'm excited about this passage because there's only three verses. Well, four. Last last time I had nine and I went long, so this promises to be better. Um, shorter. Um, let's start at, at the beginning of Galatians 3, and let's just kind of go back in our minds and, and remind ourselves at the beginning of this chapter, Paul is giving a rebuke to the Galatians, remember? He used a lot of rhetorical questions like, who has bewitched you? And, and he was, his point was he was trying to help them to remember, to go back and remember that the point at which they received salvation, right? And he asked him a lot of questions about that. He said, it was by faith that you received salvation. And then in verses six through nine, he points to the covenant that was established by Abraham and uses Abraham as, a, as an example. And, and then he just really expands on that. In fact, we're even talking about uh, the covenant with Abraham today. But he makes this point that only those who are of faith are the true sons of Abraham. And then last week, Uh, Josh talked about the law and how the law only brought a curse to us and that living by the law is living under a curse. And in fact, all of us are under that curse because none of us could meet the requirements of the law and follow it perfectly. So we're all cursed. And this week in verses 15 through 17, we see the object of faith, which is the promise. Now, Let's think about promises. Let's talk. think about agreements this morning. Have you ever been making an agreement with somebody? Maybe you're selling a car or you just got a friend and and you guys are deciding on something. And suddenly the terms of the agreement change. How does that feel? It doesn't feel good. Jan Jan says it doesn't feel good. It doesn't. It doesn't. We get we get a little bit upset, and the and the terms of the agreement should not change unless both parties are are okay with it, right? So there are some circumstances in our world where the the circumstance or the, the terms of the agreement could change. Let's think about an inheritance, though. Let's think about a will and testament. Once that person dies, should the will change? Answer is no. Can't change because that person's dead. They can't make the change there. And if you try and change it, that's when things start getting ugly, right? So, Paul is focusing us today on the unchangeable covenant promise of God. And our hope that we have is established and it stands firmly on this promise. And that hope is not based on something intangible. It's it's not just wishful thinking or assumption or delusion. Think about your kids, right? When your kid when you make when you make a statement to your kids and it's something great, something that they're looking forward to, what do they say? They say, "Do you promise?" They want they want some kind of assurance, right? "Do you promise? Do you promise that that we're going to get to go to Disneyland? Do you promise?" They want to hear something. They want some kind of assurance. And this morning, that's what we're, we're looking for this morning, is that assurance that God has, get, has made a promise and that he is going to be faithful to that promise. So uh, the message today is, is entitled, Misunderstanding the Promise. And Paul is going to unpack the important Jewish idea of the Abrahamic covenant, and he's going to point out how these troublers of the Galatians are missing the point. They've missed it. Paul is going to show them that faith in the wrong thing makes the promise void. So if you make void the promise, you do not share in the blessing of Abraham. So he's going to have two corrections for them this morning. We'll find the first correction in verses 15 and 17. I have no idea why he does this, but uh, the second correction is in 16 and 18. So he kind of, I guess he addresses and then answers both of them. So this morning, let's look at 15 and see what the first correction is. 15 says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. The the first phrase there, kata anthropon, lego, means literally, I speak according to man. Now this doesn't mean that he is speaking with man's authority. He's still speaking with the authority of an apostle. But what he actually means to say is, I'm going to use an everyday example here for you. I'm going to speak according to man, a human example. And, and notice that he's he's calling them Adelphi. He's calling them brothers. Remember, last at the beginning of three, he calls them, oh foolish Galatians, right? Which is a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a a strike on their nationality. These Gauls, these—they these, uh, they were rebellious. They were—they uh, were pagans, and so now though he's calling them brothers, moving away from that rebuke to to reason with them. And so, so for me, I go well. Well, maybe there's still hope. There's hope that 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 Paul can appeal to their brotherhood in the faith. He uses the word covenant here, even with a man-made covenant. And that, that covenant actually indicates that second example that I gave you, a final will or testament. And we, we get that because of context, right? At the very end, he starts to talk about inheritance, right? So as, as we put those two together, that, that this idea of covenant indicates a final will or testament. It is not a covenant like the law, but rather it is a covenant That includes a donation or a free gift given to heirs. Uh, Again, once once somebody dies, you can't go back and change their will. Death has ratified the will. And God, being the one who makes the promise in this passage, ratifies the promise with death. We'll see that later. But he also ratifies it with the very nature and character of who he is. That God is unchangeable, as unchangeable as death. Now listen, as, as I'm going through, Brady and I are studying uh, together, we're doing a little discipleship, and we're going through the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And as we go th- just through the very beginning of that, I'm just struck with the number of times as, the, as that confession describes who God is, it calls him unchangeable, unchangeable unchangeable again and again. And so as I come to this passage, I'm just like, yeah, that's, that's who God is. The other thing that I want us to look at here is that it says no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. And that's basically, basically saying no one changes the original. The, cha- the, the original stays intact, stays the same. Now, let's get into the, to the meat of this and jump down to 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make that promise void. Now, Paul is is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He started with a human covenant, right? But now he's moving on to talk about what God has done in making his covenants. He's saying if this is true on earth, then the heavenly reality is even greater. So what is the argument It seems like Paul is answering a question that he anticipates that they would make, that the troublers of the Galatians, this is what they would ask. This is what they would come and they would present to Paul. They would say, you claim claim that Abraham received salvation by faith alone. But what about the Mosaic Covenant? Come on, Paul. What about the Ten Commandments? What about those 600-plus commandments that go with the Ten Commandments? Doesn't the Mosaic Covenant amend or add to Abraham's simple faith? Doesn't God give the the law through Moses to show what we need to do, our part of salvation? Because the law seems to point to our works, that they matter in order for us to be right, in order for us to be pure, in order for us to be clean before God. And Paul says, In response to this, a human testament can't be altered once it's ratified. So the Mosaic covenant that came after God's promise to Abraham cannot cannot change the promise agreement that was previously in effect. So Paul is saying to his opponents, guys, you're misunderstanding the Mosaic covenant if you think that you can earn your salvation. He's saying, if you think that the law somehow is contrary to, or if it changes or nullifies the promise, and use that, use that argument to prove your point, you've completely missed it. Listen to, I'm just gonna, gonna go back through some scripture here. So listen to Deuteronomy 7, uh, 12 and 13. As Moses says, Because you hearken to these ordinances and keep and do them. The Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love which he swore to your fathers to keep, and he will love you, and he will bless you and he will multiply you. You see how in that verse, obeying the covenants and the commands and the ordinances goes hand in hand with God keeping that ordinance with the people. And it's a and it's and it's it's characterized by love and blessing and multiplying them. So, like I said two weeks ago, obedience matters. It does. Because the obedience of faith, okay, not the obedience of legalism, but the obedience of faith is the fruit of faith in the promise. Paul is saying that the, that he's not saying that the law is meaningless, okay? Don't hear me say that. He's not saying that the law is meaningless, and this is, this is beautiful because, in fact, obedience is not just a condition of the law. It's a condition of the original covenant, all right? Listen, I'm just going to show you this going back through Genesis, all right? Genesis 17, 1 through 2. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make a covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Walk before me and be blameless. That's a huge condition that God gives Abraham. And we're going to see later, it's a condition that he can't keep. And God knows that. Listen to Genesis 22, 16 through 18. It's probably one of the highlights of Abraham's life when he actually does obey God perfectly God says to Abraham after his obedience and offering Isaac, because you have done this, I will indeed bless you and multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. By your descendants shall all nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Obedience matters. Listen again, Genesis 26, 4 and 5 God says to Isaac, Abraham's son, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Obedience matters. Listen again. Genesis 18, 19. I have chosen Abraham that he may charge his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. This obedience of faith, and I said this two weeks ago, all right? I'm going to quote myself. <laughs> Because you need to hear it again. This obedience of faith, it is the singular, true, and proper response to grace that is given. Knowing that, that our justification, the thing that makes us right with God, it is secure, it is protected, it is anchored, it is captured for you. And our sanctification, that, that work of God that is making us more and more like Christ in this life, it is nailed down, it's in the bag, it's foolproof, it is settled, and it is determined. And He has promised that He's going to complete it. And therefore, we obey. It's not a big thing, because He's done so much for us. Obedience is a part of the Abrahamic covenant. It is also a part of the Mosaic Covenant, and it is also a part of the gospel. The dispensational view that the Abrahamic Covenant, given during a dispensation of promise, is somehow unconditional, is false. And the idea that the Mosaic Covenant being conditional is, puts those two covenants in conflict with one another. But promise, law, and grace are all elements of the same covenant. Jesus himself said, I I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So we have to see these two covenants working together. This is what Paul's opponents couldn't see. One does not invalidate the other. This is massive here, okay? So I, I just want you to remember this, right? These two covenants work together. Now, you may ask the question, because I'm asking the question right now, what's the point of the law then? What's it for? And I'm not going to answer that question for you, because that's next week's sermon. And Josh is going to answer that question for you, right? So that's the, the first, the first uh, well, let's, let, me, let me continue. Paul uses this argument to point to the unbreakable nature of the covenant. He says again, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. And so in response to that, we hold on to the promise, right? We hold on to the promise, just like our children, again, going back to that Disneyland trip. But you promised. You promised. Okay, how many of you have kids? All right. How many of you feel like you've broken a promise to your kids? It, and, it, you know, the circumstances change, you know. And you try and explain that to your son or daughter, right? and it's just this look of like how could you how could you break that promise to me the reality is is that we as humans break our promises all the time we are promise breakers last week we learned that we are law breakers too so we're breaking all kinds of things but god and what i want you to hear today is god is not a promise breaker if god makes a promise to you that promise is true It will come to pass. You don't have to doubt it. You'll never face that disappointment that our children have had to face when we break their hearts by breaking a promise. To summarize what we've said so far, Paul is fighting against the foolish vanity of legalism, somehow making the promise a transactional agreement, somehow that they're they they think they can earn it that they're entitled to it and he's saying that can make your faith void that can nullify the promise those of you who believe this nonsense were saying that the law made void the promise of god obtained by faith and you voided it by adding works so let's go back to 16 and look at the second misunderstanding Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, now these promises, who are they given to? And what are they? That's what I want us to look at right now, because in those two questions is where the the, the people who were troubling the Galatians were missing it. So initially, we can say that the promise was given to Abraham, right? Because we see that in verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham. The next part, and to his offspring. That's the question, right? So to answer that question, let's look at Genesis 12 through Genesis 21. I'm going to summarize a lot, okay? So... Um, And this is going to tell us about the promise. This is going to tell us about the Abrahamic covenant. So if we look at Genesis 12, 2 and 3, this is the promise that is given to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Now look back at the at your Bibles, right? I want you to look through there and count the number of times the words "I will" are in there. Look at it. One, two, three, four. There's at least four. Did I count it wrong? Did anybody else count it better? It's four, four times. God says, "I will." meaning I'm the one who's going to accomplish this covenant. If we read Genesis 15, 2 through 4, we see that this, the, the covenant promise comes through a seed. It's going to come through an offspring. And it, that seed is going to come from Sarah. In, the, in verse 2 it says, chapter 15, but Abraham said, O Lord, What will you give to me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Elysier of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my own house to be my heir. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Elysier of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now Abraham and Sarah have been childless, so this promise that God has given them seems a little bit cuckoo cocoa puffs, right? It's like, and they're both old; they're really old. So Abraham's coming to the Lord and saying, "Hey, this this promise that you said that you're going to make my name great, and that I'm going to have this a great, I'm going to be a great nation, I don't see it. You haven't given me an offspring." In fact, this guy, Eliezer of Damascus, he's the best guy I can find to pass my stuff down to. And God says, no, not that dude. He's going to come through your own son. So then if we read Genesis 16, Abraham tries to accomplish the promise through Hagar. Okay? Now, don't fault him because I think this was kind of common in that time. That the, your wife's maidservant could bear a child to you. Um, and Abraham even comes to God... And tries to convince God, once, once Hagar bears Ishmael, Man, let my line go through Ishmael. Come on, I've got a son. I did it, right? I was successful. And God corrects Abraham and says, no, no, through Sarah. His name will be Isaac, and the covenant will go through him. And then, if you keep reading, chapter 20 Abraham puts the whole promise in jeopardy as he runs into to Abimelech, this king, and Abimelech says, hey, who's that lady? He goes, oh, that's my sister. What? It's like it's through Sarah. He just told you. Your line's going to go through How is your line going to go through Sarah if you give your wife away to a king? And so God has to intervene. And it's not until chapter 21 that Sarah conceives and she gives birth to Isaac. They had to wait. And this whole time, if you're reading the story, I'm just like, Abraham! Abraham! Stop doing stuff. Everything you do is messing up God's promise. And yet, and yet, isn't God so good? Isn't our God so good that despite Abraham's messing it up royally, the promise is accomplished. And Abraham has a son, and it's Isaac, and the seed goes through him. So the second thing, so the first thing we saw was that there, there is a promise of a seed. The second thing is there's a ceremony in, in Genesis 15. This is R.C. Sproul's favorite passage of the Bible. I think you're going to understand why as I explain it. Um, and this ceremony indicates the unconditional nature of the covenant. Both parties in a covenant were to come together, and in that day, uh, they had a, a treaty. It was a, uh, it was a Hittite vassal treaty. This is not in my notes. Uh, and, and what they would do is they would, they would get some sacrifice, they would get some animals, and they would cut them in half. And they would, they would place the pieces in a, on either side of a path. And they called this the pathway of blood because all the blood would come together. And the two parties would walk between the pieces in making this agreement. And, and the, 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 the point of that whole ritual was to say, if either of us break the covenant, this is what needs to happen to us. We need to be cut in half. And here's the beautiful thing about this. In this story, where God comes to make the covenant with Abraham, and Abraham is about to walk between these pieces and condemn himself, because he can't keep the the promise, his end of the promise, which is to walk before me and be blameless. We've already seen how he messes things up. So before he does that, God intervenes, and Abraham falls asleep, and R.C. says this is his most favorite part of the Bible, is to watch God walk between the pieces by himself. Saying, if this covenant is broken, I will bear the consequences. I will pay the price. I will be cut in two so that you don't have to. That's beautiful. The third thing that I want to see you to see is in Genesis 17, a sign of the covenant is given. And this sign is circumcision. It's a permanent mark on their flesh that God required of the people who were in covenant with Him. And those who refused the mark were declaring that they were outside of the covenant. This is why God gets so mad at Moses when Moses decides... I'm not going to circumcise my son. Maybe he, did, maybe he was just deciding and taking a long time. Anyway, God's about to kill him, and his wife has to intervene and do the circumcision so that God would relent because God is a covenant God, and he wants his people to bear a sign of that covenant. Now, this is, this is where the Jewish uh, opponents of Paul, they, they probably would camp out and make their case right here. But what I want you to understand is the sign is not the promise. The sign is not the promise. It only points to the promise. The fourth component, real quick, is there is a component of blessing and redemption. That all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. This is, this is, this is the promise that God is making to, to Abraham. Through you, all people will be blessed. You'll be a great nation. And that promise was fulfilled and ratified by Jesus Christ, the true seed of Abraham. What do I mean by that? Well, this is where Paul is challenging the Jewish assumption that Abraham and his offspring meant them. They they had made the assumption that when, when the Scripture said to their offspring, he was talking about them. And they would say, no, 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 Paul. No, no, I see where you're going, but the offspring is us. (laughs) That's why, and, and they clung to this idea that they were good with God, that they were justified and included in God's promise and his blessing because God had made a promise as Abraham's offspring to them, even though they failed miserably. Let's just look at the fruit of it, right? Did the Jewish people... Were they a blessing to the other nations around them? I think they profaned God's name more than they blessed. Among the nations, they were profaners of God's name. They saw the the singular word. Now, this word offspring can be plural and it can be singular. It can go both ways, okay? They saw it. They saw this, this word that Paul is saying should be singular, they saw it as plural. And because of this, the Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant does not make clear, okay, that the seed of Abraham is singular. It does not make clear at this point that the source of the blessing or cursing is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Okay? Let me me use Luther to, to kind of clarify that. Luther says they couldn't see it. Because the testament had been sealed up and only now was revealed as pointing to Christ. So Paul explains the obvious to them. Because Christ appeared. Because he arrived. Because we say advent, that word means arrival, and we celebrate that now. Because Jesus came, God's promise was to Abraham and to one offspring, not many. Luther continues and says, God's testament to Abraham now revealed was as if God promised to Abraham, I of mere mercy do promise unto thee that Christ shall come of thy seed who shall bring the blessing upon all nations oppressed with sin and death. Paul's opponents needed correction in their understanding of God's promise. But, you know, hey, we, can't get, we can't get down on them because we often, in a similar way, believe God, believe God for things that he has not promised us, right? And we're ignorant of the things that he has promised us. So did the law bring salvation? No. It brought a curse. But it did point to the same thing as the promise. Remember, Josh said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, who is that pointing to? Christ, okay. As, as this week, he points to the seed, singular. Way back from Genesis 3.15 when he promises Eve that her seed, many or one? One would crush the head of the serpent. And then now to Abraham, the promise that his seed would bring blessing. It's pointing to Christ, Christ being the object of our faith and the power of the covenant to save. It's not by works, but by the promise. It's by faith in the promised seed. All right, verse 18, and it kind of wraps us up here. For, by the inheritance, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul also says the same thing in Romans but with different words. He says in Romans 4:14, 4, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith has been made empty and the promise has been abolished. Okay? So this is really important here. This this could be like this is like this is where we this whole thing has been moving to. Paul says if inheritance comes by the law as you claim it does, then faith is meaningless and his and his opponents would have said yep that's what we're saying you got to be circumcised but what they were also saying in that which they would not agree to but paul is pushing the point he says if you're okay with that then the promise to abraham is void the promise to you through abraham is void the whole Father Abraham, we're seeds of Abraham. You've just destroyed it. Paul says you can't have it both ways. An inheritance is received because you're an heir, not because you buy into it. So Christ had to come. The promised seed had to come. The perfect God-man, born of a virgin in a humble stable with dirt and manure, and animal smells, all in order to live among us, to walk with us, His own creation. He had to be born like us in order to be the perfect substitute. And in great love, He became a curse under the law for all of mankind to provide atonement. He bore our sin and our curse on a tree. He was exposed like a public announcement that God's wrath had been judiciously satisfied. He hung in our place. He was cut off and was the one guilty of breaking our, of breaking the covenant law. Jesus was accursed of God and became the ultimate expression of the wrath of God on fallen humanity. That's what atonement means. It means Christ instead of you. It means Christ instead of me. Does that change the way that you hear what Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 3.1? He said, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Do you remember looking upon him and seeing the curse? Looking upon him and seeing your sin? He's saying, look upon Christ See the judgment that you should have received and by faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Receive grace, receive mercy, receive forgiveness. He has fulfilled the covenant with Abraham. He fulfilled the covenant with Moses. So now he can make a new covenant with you. And God can make a promise to you. Has God made it a promise with you? Has God made a promise with you? It's one of the questions that we asked at the very beginning. Has God made a promise? Who's the promise for? He's done all of this to make a promise with you. Listen to Luther again. Faith is not what some people think. Their human dream is merely a delusion because they observe that faith is not followed by good works or a better life. Immediately, they, they fall into error even though they speak and hear much about faith. They say, faith is not enough. They say, you must do good works. You must be pious to be saved. They think that when you, when, when you hear the gospel, you start working, creating your own, by your own strength a thankful heart which says, I believe. That's what they think true faith is. But because it is a human idea, because it's a dream, the heart never learns anything from it. So it does nothing No reform comes from this kind of faith. But he says, instead, faith is God's work in us. It's a work that changes us and gives us new birth from God. It kills the old Adam and makes us completely different people. It changes our hearts, our spirits, our thoughts, and all our powers. It brings the Holy Spirit with us. Think about that. The old covenant never gave the promise bears the Holy Spirit to help them. But now we have the promised Holy Spirit. Yes, faith is a living, creative, active, powerful thing. Faith cannot help by doing good works constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works should be done, but before anyone asks, it's already done them and continues to do them without ceasing. Anyone who does not do good works in this manner is an unbeliever. That's from uh, his letter, uh, his introduction to the, to the letter to the Romans, Martin Luther also says, God does not look upon with favor those who do much, but those who believe in Christ much. The promise and the law required faith in God to fulfill what we couldn't do on our own. We couldn't do it. We needed help. And help us to be, it requires us to believe. It requires us to trust in God in faith. Now I want you to think about that faith. And the and the two words that are very close: faith and faithful. Faith is exclusive. Faith has fidelity. Faith doesn't run around. Faith is committed. Faith is not a la carte like our culture likes to make it. I want a little bit of this. I want, a, I want, I want some works over here. I want some superstition over here. Maybe I like this over here, what these people are saying. I'm going to put that in there. When you do that, you void the faith. Now, it's not faith in Christ. It's faith in a bunch of stuff. And it is not saving faith. Luther's description of this faith and why I read it to you makes me question my own faith. Makes me look at my own heart. And Paul encourages us to do that, to test, to see whether or not we're in the faith. And I ask questions like: Is my faith, is my faith have joy? Is, 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 Is my faith my motivation? Is it my heart? Is faith living, creative, and active, and a powerful thing that's changing me? And maybe you're asking the same question. Last week, we heard that because the curse is removed, the blessings are ours by faith. The promise is ours by faith. There are two ways to live. You can live under the curse or under the promise of blessing. Deuteronomy eleven twenty six. 26, see, I'm setting before you today, blessing and a curse. And what does he say? Choose life. Choose life. We can live under the curse or we can be the blessed man of Romans 4, 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own goodness because you can't? You just can't. It's faith in Christ alone. That is the only trustworthy thing in this world. And there's so much at stake. There's so much at stake that I have to ask you, what are you trusting in? Paul says, Galatians 3, 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you desire to have that faith today, as we sing songs at the end of the service, man, I just I direct you to God himself. I say, cry out to God this morning. Give him your heart. Give him, give him your life. Tell him you want to believe. Ask him to help you believe. Tell him you want to be saved today. Tell him that you want forgiveness of sin. That you want to walk before your creator and be pleasing in his sight. And if you do that, if you, if you make that commitment to God as we sing, man, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Josh this morning because we want to help you take the next steps in faith so that you can grow in the grace that you've received. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for, your, uh, thank you for making promises to us. We don't deserve... We don't deserve the blessing, and yet through your grace, through your mercy, you have been so kind, so generous, unthinkably kind to us. And Lord, I pray that that kindness leads us to repentance. Father, I pray that that kindness leads us to say, Father, I have rebelled against you, and I desire you more than anything this morning. I want you. I want to receive the promise through Christ. Help me believe. That's our prayer today, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.